Okay, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for coming. We appreciate it. We want to respect everyone's time. So we're going to actually do something very novel, and that is begin on time. Um, I want to wish Ya'er, who just got married last week, a mazel tov. And our community should continue to celebrate many, many smachot together. Um, why, why are you here? You're already not doing this well. It's the first, di first difficult question from our panel. And by the way, they'll be asking the questions. Um, so I want to welcome everyone um, to this, uh, I think, a really, really important conversation with our distinguished panel. And I want to thank you guys in advance for taking time out of your very, very busy schedules to be here. It means a lot to us to be informed and also to be inspired. Um, I want to thank Rabbi Ezra, Leah, everyone else from MGE, Michal, who helped make this program possible tonight. Um, and I want to give a special shout out to the graduate students uh, that are here tonight. Uh, we began this grads.mge, give yourselves a little psh, okay? We began this grads uh, program uh, here at MGE for the many graduate students in New York City last year. And I want to thank our dear friend Sharon Haberman for helping us launch this program last year and for brainstorming tonight. Uh, and thank Alex, who just came in, who was a student of Professor Davidai and helped us bring the professor here. So thank you very, very much uh, well, for being you here. Haven't taken my class yet, so. You're supposed to be in school now, whatever. Okay. Um, not off the hook. Uh, but anyone interested in getting more involved in uh, MGE grads, as it's called, uh, please see my son, Ezra, who is spearheading the program. Welcome, Ezra. Um, before I introduce the panel, and I want to get right into it, um, I just want to say just a brief word. Uh, Jill and I, my wife and I, just came back from Israel this morning, and... Um, I just wanted to share a brief word to frame our conversation, our discussion. Uh, we spent a very intense week. Hold on, let me put this on. We spent a very intense week uh, distributing materials to the IDF to various bases in the country, volunteering in different kinds of ways. I also want to thank all of you that came here last Sunday and brought stuff, um, a lot of stuff that we schlepped to Israel. I can't even tell you the, um, the faces, the smiles from the letters and the notes that we brought them, the soldiers. Um, by the way, I want to just recognize someone who I met tonight, Abir Suarez, who introduced himself to me tonight, who just came from Israel also. He's from Israel and is in the reserves, and he served for the last month somewhere in Israel. He's not going to tell us exactly where. But we want to thank you for your service to the Jewish people. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, so the most difficult moment of the week, besides one particular shiva call, to um, of those of you who may remember Stephanie Keating, MGE participant many years ago, who unfortunately um, lost her stepdaughter was killed, Rose Lubin, was a policewoman in Israel. And um, besides that, we spent a little time walking through Kfar Aza, and we went with um, a group of about 20 other rabbis. 
And um, it's the village adjacent to the Gaza Strip that was invaded on October 7th. Um, many of its residents brutalized and the level of destruction was just beyond words. But as the IDF personnel were taking us through, like every like two, three minutes, there was this huge boom. It was like, it sounded like an explosion. Literally the earth shook. And I, you know, just got nervous. And right away the IDF spokesperson who was taking us through said, you should just know those are Israeli mortars shelling Hamas in Gaza, trying to destroy the tunnels, targeting terrorists. Those are our explosions. And somehow, you know, I was obviously happy to hear that. Um, and so as we walked through this devastation amidst all of this destruction, it felt like the closest thing that you can imagine to a korban, like just a, a desolate place that once was thriving. Amidst all of that damage, there was this sense of, yes, Israel has been hit hard, but Israel is fighting back very strong. Every boom and every explosion was another reminder of Israel's strength and of her conviction to defend the Jewish people. And that night we went to an army base and uh, we had a barbecue with over 100 soldiers. And I was talking, and the morale was just incredible. And one of the soldiers that I was speaking with, one of the chayalim, when I asked him how he was doing, he said he was ready to fight. He wanted to fight, he was like itchy. He's like, I'm here for 40 days, I wanna fight. And it wasn't bravado, it was a real strength and pride in being Jewish. And I wanna just begin tonight with this sentiment that we are no longer victims. And that in fighting the anti-Semitism that we're here to talk about tonight on campus, we need to take our cue and a little inspiration from our brothers and sisters in Israel who are very strong and are fighting back. And there's one other thing to learn from them that is of course the achtas, the extraordinary level of brotherhood, of sisterhood, of love. People are just, everyone is helping each other. There's no right or left, religious, secular, or anything in between. It's one people helping each other on their farms, accepting displaced families from the north and south in their homes, collecting materials for them, taking care of each other's children. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. And if we can mimic those two things in our fight here in the United States in terms of anti-Semitism, we're focused on campus anti-Semitism tonight. There is nothing we can't do when we're unified. And that's why we brought this distinguished panel together tonight and who are involved in different aspects of campus life and who each in their own unique way are making a real difference. And I thank you all again for joining us. I'm just gonna very briefly introduce our panel and then we're going to start with some questions and we're gonna leave you guys some time for questions too, okay. Um, Shai Davidai. Uh, is an assistant professor of management at Columbia's Business School, got his PhD in social psychology from Cornell, BA in psychology 
in cognitive sciences from Hebrew University. He's from Israel. Shai spent a year as a postdoctoral fellow at the School for Public International Affairs at Princeton. He's a pretty impressive guy. Um, and many of you are now familiar with him because uh, he gave this awesome speech. It looked very impromptu at Columbia University, went viral. And um, uh, you're giving us a lot, a lot of strength and we thank you for coming here tonight. Uh, Adela, I'm just gonna go skip over, I'm sorry, my notes are just mixed up, uh, is a Jewish activist, author, and a JD candidate at my alma mater at Cardoza. Um, she sued in 2019, and we had Adela here since then to speak at one of our Shabbat dinners. She, she sued NYU for failing to protect Jewish students after an Israeli flag was burnt by a group of anti-Zionist students. And um, her case reached the, the first Title VI settlement openly addressing anti-Semitism. We're gonna hear from her tonight about what can be done and what is being done on the legal uh, side of things. Um, she's been recognized internationally, including top 50 pro-Israel influencers. And uh, she's also served as official rep of Jewish students at the United Nations. And uh, she is a proud Syrian Lebanese Jew from Mexico. <laughs> Just reading the bio, reading the bio. Um, going back to Talia, welcome Talia. Uh, Talia works for a very important organization that we wanted here tonight, and that is Israel on Campus Coalition, ICC, uh, where she empowers pro-Israel and Jewish students in general uh, in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut to stand up for Israel and for their community on campus. She hails from Florida, went to Florida Atlantic University, um, and um, also led in Masa, Israel, teaching fellows living in Bat Yam. She's amazing, and we really thank you for being here tonight as well. Last, you know, let's give it up, is um, a gentleman at the end, Gidon Askowitz, whose dad we want to say hi. Lawrence Askowitz, who's been, um, he drank the Kool-Aid at home because his dad has been advocating on behalf of Israel for a long time. But Gidon is a second year student at Macaulay Hunter, where he's majoring in economics, minoring in political science. He spends his mornings and nights learning, studying Talmud at Yeshiva University and aspires to be a constitutional litigator. He was recently on Fox News for very respectfully confronting uh, a woman tearing down a hostage poster. Um, I thought you handled that very you know, under the circumstances as best as possible. He's passionate about his Judaism and the Jewish people and is a student leader at Hunter College. Thank you all for being here tonight. So we're gonna begin right away by identifying the problem. Um, how serious is the issue? Okay, you don't all have to answer every question. I wanna get like a conversation going if that's okay. How serious is the issue, anti-Semitism? And, and, and if there are any specific incidents that you believe are really emblematic of the issue that we are facing. Let's just start with that. Go for it. Hi. Um, thank you for having me. I would say that the issue is, is pretty significant, and it depends on which campus you're looking at, but it's significant on all the different campuses. So Hunter College, for those of you who don't know, is a part of CUNY, the uh, City University System of New York. And at the different colleges, we have different chapters of SJP or the Hunter PSA, which is 
possibly, in my opinion, the most nefarious one. It's the Palestinian Student Association. On October 7th, on that same day, they posted a uh, they post on their Instagram a post celebrating the attacks of what they called resistance and calling for all educational institutions to join in the cause of resistance. So noting that they're calling the slaughter of Jews resistance and then calling for all educational institutions to join in on said resistance is showing their animus towards Jews on our campuses in the most extreme of ways. You also have issues at other schools. You have a friend of mine, Amanda Silverstein, you guys may have seen her testifying in Congress from Cornell. You have students calling for the rape of Jewish uh, female students and slitting the throats of other students. So no matter really where you go, if it's the Ivies or if it's the uh, more lowly CUNYs, you're going to find serious issues across our campuses. Thank you. Yeah, that was beautifully said. And if I could add one thing is that it goes to every single level of a college. So not only is it students that are organizing these, um, you know, protests, if you want to call them, that are posting these solidarity statements. It's, it's not just the students, it's the professors who support them who have been teaching this for decades. And I can tell you because I was at NYU and every time I spoke to someone from an older generation, they said, oh, when I was at NYU, it wasn't the same but you could tell that certain professors in the Middle Eastern Studies Department were already teaching this. And then the issue comes to the administrative level. Um, so for example, at, at NYU, we had every single level. We had students that were organizing protests. They were posting pictures of Jewish students on social media, calling us fascists and racists. Um, it started with your typical BDS that you would see at other college campuses. And I, I, I don't wanna, there we go. So it started with the typical BDS that you would see on other college campuses, but then it really just became this hard, intense student level. They were being advised by three different professors that supported SJP. And when I went to Jewish professors and said, well, can you support us? Jewish professors said, well, we don't get involved on the student to student level. And the reason why I ended up suing is because after a Yom Hatzma'ud event where a Jewish girl was assaulted and battered, an Israeli flag was burned, and NYPD stepped in, and I had been meeting with the administrations for months and this could have been prevented, the school promised action and then instead they gave SJP an award. So it's one of those things that not only were their actions not alarming, they were being celebrated. And I think that the levels are different. I think that really the professors are the main issue because they embolden the students and then they intimidate the administration because the administration I don't think is anti-Semitic. I think they're lazy. And I think that when people are pushing and they're almost like a fire underneath their chair, the administration is going to start standing. And they're standing for the wrong side. So unfortunately, very deep-seated. Unfortunately, there's three different levels that we have to work on this on. Yeah, I have to agree with both of you guys. And I, you know, I commend you for standing up on campus. And Adela, I know that you've been working in this field for so long. Um, but I also think it's important to note that anti-Semitism is the oldest form of hatred um, in the world. And, you know, anti-Zionism is now just a mask for anti-Semitism. And so it gives students an excuse um, to be anti-Semitic and be like, oh, I'm not actually anti-Semitic, I'm just anti-Israel. Um, and I think that because of this rhetoric, it, it's becoming increasingly harder to fight it on campus, um, which is why we have these issues with administration. Um, so I think that it's important to, um, you know, continue to educate your, like, your peers um, and continue to speak your voice, uh, make your voices heard about um, how this does relate to to you as a Jewish student, um, and uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. But um, yeah, you, <laughs> you guys know what I'm saying. Uh, 
So it's important to make your voices heard um, and to stand up in, in, in the face of adversity, especially when it's coming from um, the higher ups on campus. So you start, no, I'll talk without a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> you've heard me shout. Um, <laughs> and you said we don't have to answer all the questions. No. Like you talked the panel with you. So the question of seriousness is something that I've been tackling quite a bit, um, mostly because people are um, People that I thought were friends, uh, you know, asking my wife, like, is he really scared? Is he, you know, like, ah, oh, he doesn't need. And the truth is, you know, whenever there's any problem in the world, you can err on this one side or the other side, right? When you have some spot on your skin, you can say, you can wave it off and say, oh, it's nothing. Or you can take precaution and go and have a check, right? And obviously, there's cost to being too scared and there's cost to being too blessed. And I think what we're seeing now is that for too long, we as a group, but also the world outside, um, is not taking it seriously enough. And now we just can't afford to wave it away. Like, oh, it's just, you know, we didn't take it seriously enough Dave Chappelle went on SNL and talked about the Jews. We didn't take it seriously enough when MAGA crowds chanted Jews will not replace us. We didn't take it seriously enough when Kanye West, you know, went on a hipper should have finished the job diary. That's the problem, right? Like to me, it, it's not about. I don't know the truth. I don't know, you know, like you know, some campuses have it more serious, some campuses have it less serious. But the truth is that we can't afford. Just wait and see is it serious or not because you know, um, in history has taught us that when we don't act early enough, that's when you know when we do want to act with something too late for us to do anything. And, and let me ask you this, and, and we'll we'll continue this way then. Why is it? I, I just saw a study, at the, the it was a Harvard polls study that was conducted which was great, said 80% of Americans support Israel's war against Hamas. The same study concluded, though, that when you get into the 18 to 24-year-old range, almost 51, a little more than 50% of the students, 18 to 24, believe that Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th was somehow justified. So my question to you guys is, why is that? How has an entire generation been somehow, I, to me it sounds like brainwashing, um, and what, what do you think we should be doing about that? Because we're 2023, these are the next leaders, that 50%. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're not material you're 24, you were two years old when 9-11 hit. You have no idea what it's like to experience terrorism, right? You have no idea what it's like to call someone and not know if they don't pick up because they're busy or because they're dead. You just don't have that personal experience. For you, it's 
you know, like these freedom fighters somewhere out there. They're, you know, we're fighting for freedom. And, you know, that's why, you know, and, that's, and I don't see this as like Israel's problem or the Jewish problem, right? But that's why we see them all of a sudden glorifying the Nazis, right? Like, you know, 10 years ago, you know, the U.S. was celebrating the closure of that chapter with, you know, when they got the Nazis. These kids were not even, they were preteens. They don't even remember that. They don't remember... You know, they grew up in a world where you go on a plane, you just take off your shoes, and everything is fine. They don't know what real fear is. And you can see it also in their rhetoric, right? So they see themselves as Che Guevara's, as, um, you know, uh, they take, they take their, um, their, their toolkit from the anti-Vietnam War. Uh, so they see themselves as like, Fighting the good fight, um, you know they do sit-ins. Um, what they don't realize is that, you know, the Vietnam War protests came after seven years or six years of a war that cost many, many, many uh, American soldiers' lives. It wasn't on the first day. It wasn't on the second day. The the Iraq War protests came. A long time after 9/11, they, they for them it's like this is what you do. There's an attack, you immediately take the side of whoever you think is the underdog. And I agree, they they've been radicalized by people that I'm ashamed to call my colleagues. Um, and they're looking up and they see that the administration. I actually think the administration uh, is anti-Semitic, um, because I don't judge anti. <laughs> I don't judge anti-Semitism by your thoughts, I judge anti-Semitism by your actions. And, you know, they were looking up, they see, oh, I can say whatever I want, I won't get in trouble, and they just say it. Um, they're just like kids. Like, so it's, and, and do you have, is there any kind of response to this growing, you know, number of, you know, 18 to 24 year olds that are, you know, the social justice warriors, whoever is stronger is, is in the wrong. I mean, is there any, or do we just sidetrack it and just deal with these symptoms, or can we actually go for the underlying, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we're all going to have to, to, to figure out. I think we have two problems. We have the short-term problem, right? These organizations just have no place in any U.S. campus. We have to get rid of them. We have to hold the administrations accountable. And then we have the long-term you know, problems. But how do we educate these? You know, and I've heard that the 13 to 18-year-olds that are not polled, those are, right. that's the big problem, right? So how do we make sure that we set up the right platform to steer these kids, who I believe in their, deep in their hearts want to do the right thing? They've just been hijacked by social media, by these radicalized uh, professors and radicalized organizations, and, and they take kids that want to do good, and like, hey, you want to do good? Here, hide your face and say by all means necessary. And they're like, okay, I'll do that. Um, but I also have some hope. So um, I got an email today from, um, that's, that's actually a lie. I got an email on October 21st, and only today I got to respond to it. Um, <laughs> 
from a senior in Westchester, a high school senior. He wrote me a really beautiful email. Um, and I thought, no, these are the leaders. These are, these are that, he's, he's the next generation. And, and I, there are amazing kids out there. Um, they are not the ones that are getting the platform. They, they are not the ones that are, you know, that are getting the focus of the media. They are not the ones that um, are getting the funding from the organization, from the universities to organize and, and do these things. And, um, I actually think that, you know, that's our way to, to fight back. And, and Adela, can you tell us a little about? Thank you. Can you tell us a little about what can be done legally? And then I'd love afterwards, I want to come back to, Professor, what you just said about, um, like, how do we then prop up those positive Israel forces? So let's do, start with the legal and then, and then the students. Great. So everyone's question is always, you know, I, my, my DMs are flooded. I get hundreds of DMs a day. And most of them are from students saying, XYZ happened on my campus. What can I do about it? Right? So I'm going to give you a really quick crash course on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And again, this is super short. But basically, Title VI says that any institution that receives federal funding, in this case, academic institutions, has the obligation to, number one, prevent discrimination and harassment, and number two, when it does occur, take appropriate steps to remedy it. So discrimination and harassment, preventative, and then remedy, right? So if something happens on your campus, you have to prove it was either discriminatory or harassing. Discrimination meaning you couldn't partake in a certain university program or resource or have a certain university experience on the basis of a protected identity, which, thanks to the executive order after my lawsuit, Judaism's now protected. Everyone clap. Yay! So nice. Because when I see that was not protected, and I had to make the case that Judaism wasn't a faith-based religion, it was an ethno-religion, and that we were a peoplehood. So it was a hard, harder, steep hill to climb, but now we got that out of the way. So you have to have discrimination or harassment. Harassment's a little bit easier. Uh, incessant harassment, there's legal definitions of harassment, every state differs a little bit, but here in New York, the, the bar is actually pretty low. And if you show that the university had knowledge of it, didn't take the actions to prevent it from happening, and then once it did happen, didn't take actions to remedy it, then you might have a Title VI case. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and I cannot give you legal advice until I take the bar. Yes. So, yet. <laughs> So what I recommend is the Brandeis Center and the Lawfare Project. They're two phenomenal organizations. I've worked with both of them firsthand. You bring your case to them. They'll assign you to a lawyer. They'll give you a consultation. And if you have a case, they will hold your hand through the whole process. You will not pay a cent. And you'll be able to file a Title VI case. Now, I do want to say two important things. Right now, um, Columbia University had a class action case that was being filed and going strong. And then Columbia University did a very good, bad thing. What's a very good bad thing? They decided to revoke the charters of SJP and JVP. It's very good because this should have happened years ago and every single school should be revoking their charters. I specifically asked for that in my lawsuit because they shouldn't be existing as organizations, not only because of their ideology, but because of their actions. So for example, if uh, you had two fraternities and one burned the flag of the other, are you telling me that that fraternity can recruit in the spring? So why is it different when it's my flag? Good question. So it's a conduct issue, but by taking that step, they can point and say, oh, we have taken actions to remedy the anti-Semitism, and it might thwart a Title VI case. Same thing with NYU. Two days after they were sued, they announced that they now have a Center for Anti-Semitism Studies, <laughs> um, which I'm sure was an endowment that was in the working for a long time. But again, the reason why they announced it in the moment that they did was because they were faced with another Title VI case. 
Now, that's not a bad thing necessarily because it means that we're becoming the fire under the chair to make the administration dance. And we're doing it the legal way, which I think is the better way other than sit-ins. So that's to answer the that's great. legal and, and, question. And is, are, have there been any, I don't know, maybe there, there's not enough um, history of this yet, but is there any evidence that like the students would uh, do worse in school or be targeted if, because... The only people who can bring it are the actual students, I assume. Uh, so technically, anyone can bring it, but if you're a student, you're going to have a much stronger case. When I wanted to file, they said if I did it anonymously, I can still sue them, but it's stronger if you do it with a name and a story. Um, same thing with Northeastern. There were a group of parents that sued, and not Northeastern, um, UMass Amherst, and that went like fully downhill. Like that was, It was actually a horrible case, and it was just like, why are you getting involved? And it was bad PR for our community. So if you don't go to the school, I really don't recommend suing. Um, and the second part of that question was repercussions for students. So when I sued, I did it two weeks before graduation. I thought they wouldn't give me my diploma, but they did. It was very awkward to walk down uh, my graduation stage and you know shake my dean's hand, but you know it is what it is. Um, Legally, no, they're not allowed to have repercussions, but I applied to top 14 law schools. I got waitlisted to pretty much all of them, Harvard, Columbia, UChicago, Georgetown, Cornell, you name it, I was waitlisted. I was only outright rejected by two schools, Yale, which is Yale, and NYU. <laughs> so you tell me if Harvard's waitlisting me and NYU is like, no, we're good. Um, you can ask if what that was, you know, an action. But Technically speaking, no, there should not be any repercussions. Um, the only repercussion might be social. I was being boycotted on campus long before my lawsuit, so at that point it just seemed like a lower bar. So that's that's my answer. Thank you. And I know you don't want to the video. I'll talk with you later. No. Um, so one thing is, just to set the record straight, Columbia did not revoke the charter. They temporarily suspended them for the semester, meaning that they're gonna be back on campus come January 5th. Um, that's the fight that I'm fighting now, um, that I expect to lose, but, but still, I'll fight until I lose. Um, the other thing is that um, there is a study from 2015, there's not a lot of studies on this, but a study showing that uh, US campuses that have at least one anti-Zionist organization, like the SJP, uh, are eight times more likely to experience anti-Semitism incidents on campus. So um, I don't know how many here are, are med students or doctors. If you have anything that increases any disease by eight times, you immediately focus on that and put everything else aside and say, let's figure this out. Um, or if you're at Columbia University, you say, let's increase that, um, and which is unfortunate, which is my employer. Um, but yeah, so, so there is actually evidence that this is, these organizations are, are, you know, it's not just rhetoric, they actually like create havoc on campuses. Thank you. And Kidon, how, 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 how do you think we could prop up pro-Israel students, give them a, a more of a platform or a little more encouragement to, uh, to speak out? Um, so I think that's a little bit more complicated. So I first got involved more publicly with this type of issue. I actually had similar private issues with my own university, but I won't get into that now. Uh, also, I recommend the Grandi Center. They're awesome. Um, so what happened to me was I went to counter protests during the first uh, real rally that they had post-October 7th. 
and I was standing in what was the pro-Israel side. The police directed me to that side. I took out my little Israeli flag because they were chanting, you know, global life Tabata. I said, awesome, there's a pro-Israel side, fantastic. So I went over there, and when I got to this big pen area uh, opposite the several hundred students, it was empty. So I went into this large pen by myself, holding a flag, and it was, it was just me. And then a student came, a teaching assistant came and stole my flag. And that was my introduction to advocacy. So um, eventually other students came out, but nobody wanted to talk to any of the media except for me because they were scared about what would happen to them. And they were right. What do you mean? That what would happen to them in terms of the school? The school would, would lash back? In terms, mostly in terms of the other students. So, and, and some professors. So I, I, they were justified in, with that fear. What happened to me shortly thereafter, uh, students started taking pictures of me. And I have been on many different social media uh, campaigns of people in the Palestinian Student Association, of the Treasury of the Bangladeshi Student Association, blasting me with the worst word in the English language that they know how to use, which is the Zionist. So I have been blasted everywhere. When I walk into school, most students stare at me. A high percentage, not most, but many students stare at me. And that's just because I've done a couple of interviews on Fox saying that hating Jews is bad, and maybe we shouldn't allow clubs on uh, the student campuses that hate Jews. The same way we wouldn't allow for clubs like the KKK because they foster a very uncomfortable and obviously an uncomfortable, that's their goal, student environment. Same way we shouldn't have SJP and similar chapters because of that study by the Amfa Initiative. It's, it's not okay. And in order to support students like me, honestly, we need to see, I think, more events like this, but ones that are targeted more towards the other students and work with the Hillel's at the different campuses. I wasn't involved with Hillel before this. Now I'm involved with the campus Hillel, and they've been really wonderful. And a lot of outreach to the silent majority of the Jewish students who are too scared. There's a guy from my school who's not observably Jewish, and he doesn't go to class anymore because he felt the class was so unsafe. And there's really, he feels like there's not much he can do. And I say, you know, like you can, it's okay, you'll, you'll still live even if you are blasted on social media. And a lot of students just don't feel like that's the case. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, Talia, maybe you can tell us a little what we can be doing online. I know that the ICC does a lot of work online trying to combat um, anti-Semitism on campus. And in terms of what Gidon said, could it have any impact? Or it's just like online and in person, they don't really meet? Yeah, I think that social media is playing a huge role um, in the conflict right now. Um, and I think there's a, a few things that um, you guys can do to continue to speak out for Israel and on behalf of Israel. Um, I think that, um, number one, we've been doing a lot of research um, on what type of content is um, most relatable to students on, or to people on social media in general. Um, we're seeing a few trends. The first is highlighting the events that happened on October 7th. This is really resonating with um, people across the country. Um, these, these atrocities that happened are unthinkable. Um, and before social media, you would never have seen anything like this. So people wouldn't normally know, um, you know the extent of what's happening. But because of social media, we're seeing. Um, and Hamas is not hiding. Um, what they're doing either. So it's important to talk about on social media what has been happening, um, especially what happened on October 7th. 
Um, another thing that you should be doing is, is highlighting the hostages. Um, this is getting a lot of, this, this is really trending um, on social media and gaining a lot of attention, um, highlighting the hostages um, and their stories. And especially when you're talking about women and children, um, this is really what is resonating with um, social media audiences. Um, and another thing you can be doing is following um, influencers like Adela um, who are really talking about the accurate, um, you know, uh, the accurate information that's out there um, because there's so much misinformation out there and everybody thinks they're an expert on the topic. Um, they read one, one, one headline um, and suddenly they know everything. Um, so when you follow people like Adela and you share that content, um, you're doing a service to Israel and showing people like, there's two sides to the story. Um, you're only seeing one side that people want to put out in one narrative, um, and it's important to share the other narrative as well. And so, you know, you, you know, I'm talking to a lot of people who come to MJ, people getting a little cynical about the social media. It's not really doing anything, all these trollers. You feel that it does something and that it's yeah. a worthwhile... It's, re it's research. It's, it's proven to be making a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Adela, please. Thank you. Thank you, Talia. If I could hop in, one important thing to note is how different social media sites work. So, for example, um, Instagram is follower-based, right? So if I post something and you follow me, you will see it, and it will recommend it to people who you also follow or who follow you. And if you repost it to your story, you amplify that same video to your own circles. TikTok is completely different. TikTok is explore page-based. It's called the For You page. Most times, you're not even watching the videos of people that you follow at all on TikTok. You're just getting whatever the algorithm feeds to you. So it's almost like unsocial media because it has nothing to do with your actual social circle the way that old social media used to. Facebook was only your followers. Instagram is your followers and people like your followers. And then TikTok is whatever the algorithm decides. And I will post the same thing on Instagram and on TikTok and the response will be completely different. Now, I want to talk about social media and whether or not it helps. 100% you should be posting on social media. It's super important, not only to educate yourself, but to educate your friends and to reach those people who are thinking like you. And then the people who are thinking like you, you're educating. But someone gave me the statistics. So there's approximately 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. And as we know, there's 16 million Jews. And that means that if even 10% of the world's Muslim population is vocal on social media against Israel, they're at 170 million, right? And that's a crazy statistic to keep in your mind. So when I was talking to um, you know, a representative of the Israeli government, they made a point that they said that there's two wars. There's the war on the front lines, which Israel will inevitably win, and the war on social media, which unfortunately Israel will inevitably lose. Now this should bring you comfort, because what he said is, if we're only winning one, I know which one I want to lose. So you don't have to be activating and saying that you have to change people's minds. In a way, you're almost softening the blow, where it's like you have to be explaining what's actually going on. There's a lot of misinformation. For me, what, whatever I do is before I post something, I fact check it. And if my fact checking fell short and someone DMs me like, hey, you know, this might be from 2017, I archive the post immediately. And until I can verify that it's not from 2017 and it actually came from this conflict, I will not unarchive it at all. And it's important to be fact checking because... The images, I, I went to Kfaraza, actually with Alex, who's in the back, he was in the back before, I don't know if he's still there. Um, I went to Kfaraza and I walked the walk and I saw the horrific images and they're horrific enough themselves. We don't need to be circulating a video from Venezuela from 2017 of a woman being lit on fire. We don't, 
because this was horrific in and of itself. We, we don't need the shock value. We have the shock value. Keep talking about it. Um, so yeah, understand how social media works. And going back to your 18 to 24 question, that's how people have been radicalized because they're not learning from their peers. They're learning from the algorithms. So let, let me ask a question. This is for the professor and for Gideon also. Shy. Shy, thank you. But I'm, you're gonna have to use the microphone. Just, all right. um, you can call me shy. <laughs> okay. Um, and you can call me naive. I started a course here at MJE to talk about the creation of the state how there was a two-state solution offered by the United Nations in 1947, and how the Jews accepted it and the Arab world rejected it, and how Israel fought back in 67, because people just referred to the Arab-Israel conflict as the Arab-Israel conflict, not 465,000 know, you know, Syrian-Egyptian soldiers on, and about to attack in Israel. And then the Gaza Strip was, you know, we disengaged in 2000. You know, when I share this, people are like, it doesn't matter, nobody cares about the truth anymore. Today it's all about your feelings. And, and I'm asking this to you, on as well, because maybe yeshiva day school graduates, like yourself, who come out of 12 years of day school and don't know, necessarily know these facts, would it embolden students with that information? And Professor Shai, would it matter? Would it matter if we got out there with a massive educational campaign to set the record straight to teach the world what happened in the last 75 years in regard to the people in the state of Israel. So, okay, so I'm gonna do the Jewish thing and answer a different question, um, <laughs> but, but it is relevant. So, my niece is, my youngest niece is four years old uh, in Israel, born in Israel. Her mother, my sister, was born in Israel. My parents, so her grandparents were born in Israel. Her, her great-grandfather, my grandfather, was born in Haifa under um, British rule. His father, um, my great-grandfather, arrived uh, to the Ottoman Empire uh, in uh, the uh, early 1900s. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make, that doesn't make the land my Right? And it also doesn't mean that I, am not, I don't have a right to live there. And it doesn't matter who has a right. And I, and I think information education is extremely important. That's my profession. But it doesn't matter. The truth of the matter is that there are two people, the Palestinian people and the Jewish people, that have nowhere else to go, despite what the Hamas would claim and despite what extremists on the right side in Israel will claim. They both live there. They have both been at various times uh, completely forsaken by the world. The Jews mostly during um, the, obviously the Holocaust, but even before in the pogroms in the uh, Iraqi Farhud, uh, but also the Palestinians have been completely forsaken by the Arab world uh, uh, in the last 70 odd years. And no one is going anywhere. Raping teenage Israeli girls is not going to help. And murdering babies in their cribs is not going to help. No one is going anywhere, and we have to solve it. And that's what scares me the most. But the, the conversation right now 
on social media, but I'm older, so outside social media as well, is Jews get out of there. And all I try to tell people is like, let's make that concrete. Let's follow your logic. How? What do you do with my, my grandmother today celebrated her 93rd birthday? Um, I got a great picture of all the family in the bomb shelter. Um, it, yeah. Um, what do we do with my grandmother? What do we do with, um, where do we send her? How do we send her? What do we do with, uh, with all the uh, physically um, challenged Jews in Israel? How do we transport them? Where do we transport them? Then when people say, well, I don't know. Okay, so, so what do we do? Do we kill all of them? Right, so what I try to do to, when I engage with people is take their abstract ideas that they are shouting, you know, globalize the intifada. It's like, okay, let's, let's break that down for a second. Let's make that concrete. Globalized intifada, meaning armed resistance outside of Israel, global. That means that an Israeli uh, anywhere in the world is a target. That means I'm a target. That means my two-year-old is a target. We've seen what Hamas did to two-year-olds in Kibbutz Be'eri. Is that what you mean? You just said globalize the armed resistance, right? Because you can hide behind abstract notions and slogans and, and the, the rhyme. But let's take that and make that concrete in the same way that we should have done in the 1930s, the world should have done, when they said Germany for Germans, right? One of the emails that I got that really resonated with me was from a, from a, a 90-year-old Jewish man who, who, told, who said, when they tell you they want to kill the Jews, we have to listen. So no amount of information will help here. I think it's important to have the education. It's important to have the information. But that's not how we win the battle. Right? Especially not on TikTok. Especially not on social media. That doesn't mean that we don't have to fight. We have to fight. And by the way, I, I love the two war metaphors. They actually call it first the Iron Dome and the, the Digital Dome. Right? Because they are. That's, that's what we're dealing with. But I also want to say another thing about standing up. Right? So you should all stand up in social media, but it's also standing up in the world. Right? For me, that changed way before October 7th. I, I am not a social activist, by the way. What I want to do is be at home with my kids. My son was crying that I came here today, and I said, look, I have to do this, and I explained, this is not work, this is shlichut, this is something that I have to do. But on August, early August, I was visiting my family in Israel, and um, this seems like very long ago, but there was very big protests for saving Israel's democracy, right? And no matter where you stand on that debate, um, those were, that, that was a very important uh, issue for what is Israel about? And on the day where they passed the first uh, legislation, I went with my, uh, my, my wife, my brother, and his girlfriend uh, to Central Tel Aviv to a big protest. And I was amazed. There were tens of thousands of people uh, standing on Ayalon, which is like the biggest uh, highway, basically closing down the biggest um, highway in Tel Aviv. 
And I had an epiphany there where I looked at my brother and I said, they are fighting our fight. And I don't feel comfortable standing here and letting them do the dirty work. So we went down to Ayalone. Uh, not 10 minutes pass, and out of nowhere comes an undercover uh, cop and sucker punches me in the face. Um, and um, that was the night where um, about 40 uh, other people got, you know, really beat up bad. I had it, I had it easy. Um, And something changed in me that day, because then I realized no matter who you are standing against, they can't do anything for you. Like, you know, so you, you can't really silence me. Because the next day, I went to a protest holding a sign. Didn't say a word. Held a sign that basically said, I'm here for the future of the children of the cop that beat me. Someone took a picture of that. That went viral in Israel. That was, uh, I don't know how or why, but I realized that when you stand up for what is right, they can't silence you. Like they can try to silence you. The only way to silence you is to kill you. But that's the only way. And then when I saw the, the, the protests at Columbia, I came home to my wife and I, and I should say I'm 40 years old just to give this a context. I know I look young. Um, but I came home to my wife and, and I, I was sobbing. And I told her, I saw the anti-Semitic beast that everyone you know, wrote about in the 1800s and early 1900s. And I, that day I decided I can't let other people do the dirty work. I have to be the one standing up. And that gave me a calm, right? Because I realized like, I know what the right thing here is to do. And my wife and I had a very important conversation of like, what price, at what price? And, I, and before everything started, I told her, look, if I were in Israel now, even though I'm quite older, I would have joined reserves. This is my reserves. So at what price? We're not sacrificing the safety of our family and my personal safety, but I might lose my job. Is that okay with you? And she said, yes, because this is the right thing. And that's it. A couple of weeks ago, I had a meeting with the senior vice president of Columbia. And he said, like, our dilemma is whether to condemn the Hamas. <laughs> He said that. And I said, you have it all wrong. Your dilemma is when and how to condemn the Hamas. Because I am not going anywhere. And we are not going anywhere. And long after you retire or lose your job, maybe I'll lose my job, but I will still be fighting this fight. Right? But I have to tell you, I felt for the first few weeks, I felt completely alone. I even went on, on uh, Israeli TV. I was... I shouldn't have gone on live TV, but I did. And I said that I feel like a commander that shouts, follow me, and then looks back and sees that no one's running out behind. 
And I felt all alone. Like, where are all the people that should be standing up now and, and, and recording their own videos and, and making their claims and saying all these things that I'm saying? And then slowly I started seeing people. And the reason I was, I'm, I'm, I'm not hopeful, but I have a glimmer of hope, is because it's not people like me that are standing up. It's young people. It's like Noah Faye. I don't know her, the, the Barnard student, but she blew me away. I immediately messaged her on LinkedIn and said, like, I'm in tears. And I know how important it is to get that message because I am getting, like, that's the only reason I keep going because people send me their messages. And then I saw, um, I think, Talia Drawer at Cornell. Um, and, and I see, and, you know, you ran on Fox News, and all, all of a sudden, like, see, the young people are standing up. And that amazes me. And, and, and I was talking with my mom today, and I, and I asked her, why do you think that is? Why do you think none of my colleagues are standing up, which is really breaking my heart? These are people that I'm, if I'm lucky, I'll get to spend the rest of my career with them. And she said, because just like you, they understand that, you know, they have something much bigger to lose here. Right? They have to lose, they'll lose their future. And honestly, I'm not standing up for my future. I'm standing up for my kids' future. Like, I, my, 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 old son, my older son is seven and a half. He's a second grader. I have 10 years to make campuses safe for him. That's not a lot. So do it on social media. Do it off of social media. Don't put yourself at risk. Do not engage with, with haters online or offline. But wherever you can, stand up. Because if Columbia fires me, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the official letter and I'm going to frame it. <laughs> and I'm going to point to that every day to my kids and say, we stood up for something. Because I'd rather be fired from an unjust workplace then keep giving it my talents. Not that I have that many talents, but whatever talents I have. So, sorry, I went on a tirade. Oh. Your, uh, your, your tirades are great, thank you. Republica votes you. Gidon, tell us, you know, because um, Shai is just saying that young people are standing up. You're not seeing that necessarily, though. What is it that we could be doing whether it's at MGE or local communities or any of us, to help the students stand up more? So I think it's a couple of things. But I actually, I first want to unpack what the professor said. No, no, Shai. <laughs> I even asked my students. You're not in this so, class, so. Okay. So what the professor Shai said. So we were all captivated by what he had just said. But the reason why we were captivated wasn't because he was conveying information. It was because of the way he was conveying information. He used a certain type of cadence. He painted a picture. He was storytelling. And because of that, that drew everybody here in. Now, when we're talking about the two different fronts, we're addressing the informational one, which as a professor you can fight, and as a student you can fight. And that's what I'm trying to do on Fox. We're trying to win the battle of ideas. That's a long-term battle. But when you're talking about people my age, the 18 to 24 and the younger people who aren't polled, they are not thinking about issues in the same way. You have to win them over through storytelling, through, through social media. 
And that's an entirely different art. So we're talking about how to empower people like me. It's not just enough to know about history. Thank God I'm very well versed in, in both American history and Israeli history and a little bit of European history. And so I can sit down with a student and on a one-on-one -on -one conversation, it is effective to talk about history and to go into conversations of land rights and international law, but that only works in a one-on-one -on -one setting and in a long-term set uh, trajectory in, how, in terms of how you change institutions and people's mind over the long term. But when you're talking about the short term, you want to you want to focus on emotions. You want to focus on painting a picture, and that's an entirely different skill. So when we're talking about what what we need to see, it's not just enough to know about Israeli history or about American history or about European history or about what colonialism is or isn't. You need to understand how to articulate yourself in a manner that is both informative and way more importantly, convincing to people in mass media. Because that is the way you're actually going to reach people in my age bracket. Yeah, that's amazing. Look at this guy, not me. Wait, and, and wait, let's stay on that for a minute then. So, how do we do that then? I mean, where you, most people who go through college, even Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, are not skilled in this in this art. I, I, I disagree. I disagree. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. That that's that's what I should have said. Because my wife asked me, "What are you wearing tonight?" <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? But there's a reason why I didn't dress up. Because I. People don't react to, that's why I don't like when people say professor, right? Like, you all know the story. You already have the, the tools. It's all about just be yourself, right? You don't have to pretend emotion because, I mean, I know. I, I've been talking with all the undergrads at Columbia, and honestly, they are the ones that have it the hardest. They are on the front line. I have a cushy life. They have, it, they have it really hard. They feel the emotions. They have their experiences. You all have that. Right? And clearly, you're a Talmud you know, student because, you know, and as clearly I can, you can see that I am not. But, <laughs> but the Talmud is all about stories. It's not, you know, do this, do that. It's like, okay, let's tell you a story about this rabbi and that rabbi, and this is what we're doing for like until 4 a.m. until this rabbi comes in, and then he says this, and then, right, that's the story. But you know the story. You know, you have the emotion. You have, like, don't try to talk about being Jewish or being Israeli, but say, what is Israeli, what, what does Israel mean to you? Why is it so important for some New York or New Jersey Jew to all of a sudden shed tears about Israel. That's what people want to know. What is Zionism to you? Now I can tell you the the whole story about Zionism, 1897, you know, the, the first Congress in Basel, Theodor Herzl, which is one of my personal role models, you know, and all the story of like, and then there were three different types of Zionism, there was the religious Zionism, there was the state belt. But, but no, what does Zionism mean to you? When you say, use Zionist as a bad word, I see it as like, thank you. But I'll tell you why, right? So, so maybe we can all train a little bit in like how to be more persuasive, but really it's all about like tapping in because you're feeling it already. Now you take that and say that. <laughs> um, can I ask you guys, um, because uh, we want to turn this over.
to you now to be able to ask any questions you would like to ask. Um, but I'm going to just transition into that by just working off what Shai and Gidon were just talking about. Is that something people feel they could develop? Because, I mean, that resonates with me too. I love the facts and I love teaching about Israeli history, but I realize at the end of the day it's going to fall on deaf ears. I do think that it is the long-term approach. Okay, there's just lies. You know, Hitler was really Goebbels' pr proof to the world that if you repeat a lie enough times, it'll eventually be believed. That's what's happening. I mean, Israel disengages from a territory and continues to be accused of being an occupying power because we hold on to electrical, electricity rights, and it's an unbelievable... So I do think down the road, and we, you know, MS truth is an important thing as far as Torah and Judaism is concerned, and it's not a, a pleasant thing to continue to listen and entertain lies. But I agree with everything you guys are saying. At the end of the day, we have to tell a story about our feelings, because that's what's going to resonate. Um, and I'm hoping more and more of us can do that. When Rabbi Ezra and I sat down, we're trying to figure out, and Ezra Wilds, why are we doing this? Why are we having this conversation? This is not just to be entertained by four very smart, knowledgeable people. It's what can you do? What can all of us do? I feel really good now because I spent a week in Israel. I clipped some prune, or some uh, plum trees. It felt good just to do something, to hand a soldier some knee pads. Somebody's crawling around in the Gaza Strip. He can do it longer. We want to do something because otherwise we're just doomsday. What is it called? Doom, doom scrolling. Okay. So um, I'd love, I'm going to give the microphone to you guys. If you want to ask a question or just talk to this issue, because I don't want the night to end without there being something constructive for everyone in this room. Hi, thank you all for being here. This is really amazing. Um, I'm not quite sure if this is a question or a comment, so I apologize if I start rambling a little bit. Um, but Rabbi, at the beginning, you asked something like, why is this happening? Why are there so many people who who believe what they do. Um, and I've been pretty outspoken on social media recently. I never considered myself an expert at all on this. I've never been to a protest in my life before the DC rally uh, last week. Um, but two of the things that I've heard that have really stuck with me of, of why this is such a problem. I think the first one is this particular generation has a victim mentality of the world is out to get them and everyone else is a problem and as a result, we should censor the people who are offending us and put a trigger warning in front of everything so that we feel safe and, and pretty much silence everyone else. So they like to, I think you all mentioned, they like to find who is the underdog or who they perceive to be the underdog. And okay, if they're the underdog, we're gonna fight for justice against whoever's attacking them. Um, the second point that I heard was that um, anti-Semitism throughout history always um, finds a way in when you look at the predominant value of society of the era, right? And whatever that value is, people who are anti-Semitic say the Jews are the opposite. So I forget exactly what those values were over time. I think an example was, you know, if a value was pro-communism, then the Jews are capitalist. And if a value was being pro-capitalist, then the Jews were communist, right? And now I think a value is social justice and justice for the most underrepresented, marginalized people at the expense of everyone else, right? And that's why I think it's very easy to, to say, oh, the Jews are, are 
these white colonizers oppressing us. So that was more of a ramble, I apologize. What's your name? Max. Tell, no, tell me, tell us that, but tell us your story. Tell us the exact same thing you just said, your story. Where does that meet you? Do you care about social justice? I do, but I always thought that included the Jewish people too. Okay, tell us about that. Well, so I've always grown up, you know, relatively considering myself a liberal, right? In my, you know, I've never been outspoken politically. I've never been, you know, very vocal about my political opinions because uh, I went to Tufts. I've always, you know, believed in like, if you're going to talk about something, you better know what you're talking about, right? Otherwise, you're just contributing to the problem and spreading a whole lot of misinformation. So oftentimes, um, I would just keep my mouth shut because I would feel like, well, I'm not really an expert on Israeli politics, so I, I shouldn't contribute to this conversation because I'm going to make it worse. Um, but I'd say over the past six months, I've uh, been much more in touch with uh, my Judaism. I've been uh, involved in another group here in New York, Olami Manhattan. Um, and I guess, I, I guess for my own story, it's... Because um, you mentioned you've never been to a protest up until last week. What made you now go to a protest? Not what made 350,000 Jews go to a protest, and non-Jews as well. What made you go to a protest? Because we were attacked first, and then Not we responded. Why did you go to a protest? <laughs> this is a great this is, exercise. This is hard, this is exactly. but this is exactly, this is exactly. Yeah. I, need a, I need a few seconds no, to no, think sure. about Because And look, what I'm asking, Max to do now is be vulnerable in front of a crowd of people that he does not necessarily know. That is hard, because all your life you were taught, do not be vulnerable in front of strangers. But if we want to convince and we want to convey, then we have to show our vulnerability. So I don't want to put you on the spot anymore, but this is exactly it. I know and we and you know why 350,000 people went, but I want to know why Max went. Don't, you don't have to answer. I think I have an answer, maybe. Because <laughs> I, I feel like, I, kind of like you said, you felt like you had a calling, like you have to do this. I feel like I have to do this, and I feel like I have... Why? Why you? Why well, I feel like I have an anger inside of me. Of, Why? Of, Who are you angry at? Uh, even, honestly, even more than what's happening in Israel, I'm, I'm angry at, at these idiots who don't know what they're talking about, who are who are attacking us because and, and painting it as uh, we're promoting they, social they justice. always attack why now? Because 1,400 people were brutally killed and they're you? ignoring that. Why you? There are people being killed every day and, and, and you know, in all over the world. Why did you go to DC? And I'm sorry if you make give you a hard time and I won't. If you can have well, a I feel like if I don't, who else is going to do it? Right. That's right. That's good. Sorry about that, Well, no, no, because this is it. This is, you know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, this is how we talk. We talk about we, we talk about, but, but in the end of the day, are you a student? Or are you a professional? Uh, no, I'm a professional. Tell me, where, where are you at? Here, in your life. New York. What uh, do you do? So I, uh, I'm an event planner. I plan ballroom dance competitions, and I teach people how to ballroom dance. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> okay, so we got to talk later, but. <laughs> But here's the thing. When you go and you talk to all the people in the ballroom, they don't want to know why 350,000 people went to DC. They want to know why you, someone who's never been in a protest, took, you know, 
you know, a day off of everything, drove, like rode in a bus crammed with, you know, people he doesn't know, all the way down there. And why was it so, why was it so important to you? And it's okay to cry and it's okay to be angry, but they need to see that. Don't try to rationalize it for them, right? The only reason my video went viral, which, by the way, I did not want to go viral today. <laughs> but the only reason it went viral is it doesn't matter who I am. Nobody cares about my name. Nobody cares about the fact that I'm a professor. And they shouldn't. It's because I was talking out of pure pain. Because I let people see the pain that typically I only let my, 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 my partner and some of my best friends. And all of a sudden, I was willing to show it to everyone. And that's, that's the reason. And, yeah. and I think that's, you, and you, you have that. I was just going to um, say, you know, Talia mentioned about the hostages. And that, that is evoking something in people. Okay? Not just anger when you see somebody pulling a hostage sign down. But to see a baby, you know, to see a, a bubby you know, who's, who knows where they are right now. And I'm just wondering, for those of us that are having a hard time, like, I'm not having a hard time right now because I just spent six days in Israel. Three or four of them just crying. Most American Jews are not feeling that because they haven't been there. So I'm just wondering, maybe that's what we should be doing when we post and when we talk. We should be telling people how we feel, what, it's, what feelings it, it evokes with us when we see a small child that was taken or, or elderly person, how could that be? And just stay focused on that. Yeah, I actually want to say what, what you guys are saying is so right. Like people never remember what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. And when you can convey how you feel, it makes them resonate with what you're saying. And it, you'll, they'll walk away understanding your pain. Um, and I think that that goes a long way um, with, uh, especially on social media, is is being able to, to get that across um, and and have the mass understand the pain of the Jewish community. Can I just tell you something about the posters? Um, <laughs> I'm telling you too much about myself. So, does anyone know where the posters originated from? They just showed up. Oh. Two artists. Does anyone know their names? So Nitzan Mintz and Deda Bendade are two, are two, two graffiti artists that a few months ago uh, decided because of everything that was happening in Israel, they were like, let's take a break, let's move to Brooklyn, see what happens. It happens that my wife's a translator. She translated some amazing books from Hebrew to English. Uh, and she's also been Nitan Mint's uh, translator for years. A few years ago, she made uh, a sukkah on, outside of the JCC uh, that Nitan Mint made, and that was my wife's translation. On October 8th, it was Sunday night, Nitan, my wife, Nitan Dede, my wife and I were on a phone call, saying, we want to do something. We want to create some posters. And you know, so so my my wife and I were the ones that wrote the text. They they created all the art. But when you look at that posters, they're supposed to 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 create a certain emotion. And what they wanted to do, their idea was, we're going to take the the lost lost child posters 
of the 80s where, on, the, on, on milk cartons. And we're going to make that for the kidnapped. That was, that was the whole idea. They had no idea, no, none of us had any idea that this would get so big. But that was exactly it. Because they could have just like, we could have made a poster with all the names, we could have made a, a poster with like just the fact, but no. It's a big image, instead of lost child, it's a kidnapped, right? My only big contribution was saying, please take a picture now and, and share on social media. That was like my social psychologist in me. but. It's working, yeah. Um, and that was it. That was the whole idea. So, like, when we think about the posters, when you think about how do we raise awareness, it's like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like, sometimes it's hard for us to connect with a story. So, resonate with someone else's story. Like, Rabbi, you know, 1,400 people were brutally murdered. He could have told you any one of those stories, but he told you one. And one that's specific to you because it's the stepdaughter, Ruth. Ruth? Yes. Ruth. Uh, Rose, sorry. Uh, that of a former MJE individual. Right? So, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Find the thing that connects you to whatever the story is. And that's what people react to. Can I just tack on something to that? Um, one, the first thing I want to note is that now we all know part of how those posters came to be. And we also know that because of what you did, that has caused a spin-off effect and given many other people a platform. From your one action that you thought, what can I, myself, concretely do today? Because of what you did, I, was, I got segments on Fox, and I know many other people have gotten segments to start talking about what they're experiencing on campus because of your own actions with your wife and their friend. That's something very important to highlight. Any questions, please? Yeah, come. Speak, right speak right into it. with my phone, but I have to make a list or else I was gonna forget my points. <laughs> my name is Michelle. I'm a graduate student at Hunter College at Silberman, ironically named by a Jewish person, but at the same time, very anti-Semitic campus. Um, I'm also a founder of my undergraduate school at the New School. I'm a founder of the Hillel there. So that's just a brief of who I am. I want you to cover a few things, and it may be repetitive based on the conversation, but one is living in fear. Before this whole time, I wouldn't always wear my chai or my Megan Dabi, but now it just gave me another reason to you actually use it. And I was always surrounded by non-Jewish people because I lived in New York City. And it just, I think this really gave me a message that we need to be strong as a community. And I think it was a message that despite how divided due to Israeli politics, which is not my best expertise, but it was a message to the whole Jewish community worldwide to not forget our history. Um, and I also wanted to show like families, my parents, they, they live in fear because I said I was going to an Israel, a pro-Israel rally, which I went yesterday, and me being involved at trying to find more of these events to be more informed. When I give facts, or, uh, facts to people, they first of all, they keep telling me that I'm misinformed that my database is biased. And it really shows that this whole idea of social justice became a cultural element excluding Jews. 
as a Jewish person from Brazilian Jewish and American Jewish. My mother is from Brazil. My great-grandparents came to the U.S. on my father's side and on my mother's side to Brazil due to the Holocaust. My, great, my grandmother said she never met her grandparents because they were born in Auschwitz. I was actually born in 2001, so I don't remember anything from 9-11, but I do know what it is to be faced in fear and terrorism due to history. I have family who survived. My dad was actually at 9-11. But why do people neglect when we try to speak up? And why do people neglect our facts? Why do people copyright our posters, tears ours down, but when we put theirs down, they keep accusing us of genocide without knowing actual facts? I even mentioned IDF soldiers saving Gazan civilians and humanitarian aid, whereas Hamas is killing and using their own people as shields. And they also never been to Israel to know the truth. I feel like a lot of this has to do with double standards and I also wanted to cover, um, there are some people who may be part of our diaspora, but are also against uh, Zionism. So even though we're 90% of us are united, 10% of us are trying, I, I don't know what the reason may be, maybe it's fitting in, maybe it is to fit this cultural dilemma of standing up for social justice. I stand for social justice, but others don't, because why do people come against me? calling me a white colonizer, oppressor, aggressor, spreading my image across several campuses. Is it just because I'm Jewish? So I would love to hear more answers to some of these questions. Um, yeah. Okay. So just a quick response to unpack that. Um, when you're talking to people and they immediately throw out your sample size is biased, I promise you, 90% of those people don't know anything about how to take a sample. <laughs> so that's just something to keep in mind. But why am I saying that? I'm saying that because those people are disguising an emotional argument as an intellectual one, and they don't actually understand what they're saying. So that's the first thing to know. And once you see that, you have to understand then that you're talking to somebody who's not listening. And there's no point of talking to a wall. There is a point in talking to people who are, have open ears and are willing to listen and say, oh, how was that sample conducted? Then there's a conversation. So we want to avoid talking to walls unless we're using that to show people who are watching that conversation how insane that person is. So I've done that at Hunter College. So I, I set up a panel, uh, just a table discussion, and I was having discussions with various Palestinian students. And they came up to me and were shouting at me. And my goal was not to talk to those students, even though that's what people thought it was. My goal was to talk to the people who were passing by, who were watching that conversation. So you have to understand who you're talking to and how you're talking to them. Yeah, I actually want to say that that is called the 1080-10 rule. Has anyone heard of the 1080-10 rule? So the 1080-10 rule is 10% of people who are always going to be pro-Israel no matter what. That's me, everybody on this panel, and that's everyone in this room. Um, then there's a 10% of people who are anti-Israel are always going to be anti-Israel no matter what. And then there's 80% the of the people in the middle who can really fall either way. Um, and I, what, what you're saying there is exactly what you should be doing. If, if you're having a conversation with someone from the 10% who is never going to be pro-Israel, you're doing it because you're trying to reach the 80% of people who don't really have an informed opinion um, to show them that this is an extremely complex conflict, um, and it's not black and white, 
and there's a lot of nuances. And by you having that conversation, you're exposing and showing them the nuances of the conflict. It shows them that this is a lot more complicated than people think. Um, people want, love to make it black and white because people don't want to understand the complexities of the conflict. Um, it's a lot easier for our brains to digest it that way. Um, so by having those, engaging in those conversations, even if you feel like you're talking to a wall, it's not to educate the person that you're talking to, but it's to educate the people around you about what's going on. I, I just want to say one thing, and this is a, maybe a bit, uh, it's, it's a bit of, not towing the party line, but um, yes, I'm biased. I'm biased. You're biased. I'm biased. Like, I'm biased by my own experiences in life, and you're biased by your, your experiences in life. And I'm not negating the fact that there's a lot of suffering in Gaza. I'm actually, right now I lose more sleep over dead Palestinian children than Israeli children, but just because the Iron Dome is keeping my, you know, my family's children safe. Having empathy for the other side is not just something that is important, it's necessary, right? Because like, what, what are we fighting for here? I'm not, I'm not fighting for a land. I'm not fighting for borders. I'm fighting for the future of children. I don't think that children, Palestinian children, or Jewish-Israeli students, uh, Jewish-Israeli children, uh, will be safer under Hamas, period. That, that, to me is, that, to me, is the story. So when someone says, Oh, what about the you know the so and so the five thousand thousand Jews? Like, yes, of course. You know, I was asked, what would you do if someone you know uh, if someone from um, a student that grew up in Ramallah um, uh, would come and tell you this and this? I, like, I wouldn't do anything. I would listen. I would offer them a hug because we are both experiencing pain. If 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 we can't acknowledge the pain that other people are experiencing, then what is this all for? That doesn't mean that I have to accept what comes from her pain, their conclusions of that pain, of course not. Like if your pain leads to more darkness and my pain leads to more light, I'm gonna go with my pain. But I'm not gonna deny your pain. Right, so I, so I think that's important. When someone says you're biased, yeah, you are biased. But your goal is to inform yourself as well. Yeah, and I, oh, is that what you wanna say something? Okay. No, no, go for it, go for it. So. Hopping off of that, um, when October 7th happened, I was in Dubai, and I'm not sure my Shabbat, so I was using my phone, and the first call I got was not from my mom, not from a Jewish friend, not from even someone in Israel. It was from someone I still consider a friend who's Palestinian, who believes Israel is an occupying power, and who believes Israel doesn't have a right to exist. But when it happened, he called me crying, and he said, Hamas just sealed the fate of my family because we both know that Israel's going to respond. And the only thing I could say was, I'm so sorry. Because I knew the truth and he knew the truth. And that's exactly what I want to point out because the difference between them and us is that we tell them time and time again, Israel's going out of its way to protect God and civilians. Israel's going out of its way here. The reason why Israel hasn't retaliated, if Israel didn't care about civilians, the war would have been over October 8th. We can repeat all of those talking points, whether or not they believe it. The difference is that they will never tell you 
that Israeli civilian loss was a casualty and was a tragedy. They will never tell you civilian loss in Israel was a tragedy, and we still have our humanity where we can say every loss of human life is a tragedy. And that's the difference between their context and ours, first off. Now second, I want to address really quickly anti-Zionist Jews. Um, and there's, if you're talking to someone who isn't Jewish, you point out that this is tokenizing. You want to say that 94% of Jews support the state of Israel. And if you want to believe that Kanye West and Candace Owens are the spokesperson for the black community, you can believe that. But at the end of the day, you're choosing minority opinion over the overwhelming majority that's screaming, telling you what they truly believe. But if you're talking to anti-Zionist Jews, because I get this question all the time, this is exactly how you should frame your argument, which is, it doesn't matter if you're an anti-Zionist Jew, you can walk into a synagogue, you can walk into a Chabad, you can sit down for Shabbat dinner, and we will welcome you with open arms because you are our brother. But on the left, if you deny even one part of their basket, they throw you away because their love is conditional, and it's conditional on full acceptance of their full beliefs. And you will always be a Jew, whether or not they want you to. You can only be a good Jew to an extent, but not to your brothers. And that's how you talk to anti-Zionist Jews, and you let them know, I love you, and I don't see you as any less Jewish. You are in no way less Jewish than me. I wish you understood the pain of our collective people, and it's okay if you don't, but know you have a seat at my Shabbat table, when inevitably, the other side decides they don't want you anymore. When they're not even willing to condemn civilian loss of life. Um, I, get, I want you to know that when we, when we were in Kfar Aza last week, we met with an extraordinary woman who was very active in the peace movement, who lost her son. Her son was killed. And she still maintains her love for all people, for all humanity, including Palestinians, and draws a very hard line in the sand between Hamas and the Palestinian people. It's hard to do that, honestly, because we'll never really know, okay, um, how many Palestinians support Hamas. We can't wait for Israel to get rid of them. But that is something that many Jewish people are still holding on to. Uh, others will perhaps consider that naive. But it is a Jewish value, as far as I'm concerned, which is not to hold a person responsible for the collective if that person is really not supportive, you know, evil, which is difficult because we don't really know to whatever degree. I just wanted to mention that because I have this woman, she spoke to, uh, to, to our group. Uh, we have time for just one or two uh, questions. Yes? Uh, my question, I'm a parent, so I have a son who's a junior in Michigan, and then a uh, senior in high school. Like, my question for you is, um, when I look at Columbia, right, and specifically, I mean, everybody in my family went there. I would never send my daughter. But it seems that Columbia, because I agree with your point, the administrators are not anti-Semitic ideologues, because they would have gotten those jobs that they said that they were openly Princeton Zionist. But they're also, in some ways, monopolies. Right? Columbia is still going to have more students applying than they have spots. They have an enormous endowment. How do you put pressure on the universities? I know Title VI is fantastic. Kudos to all of you who are doing that. And I respect the you know, initiatives of Bill Ackman and Mark Rowan who are trying to get funds pulled. But the schools are monopolies. They're not really reacting 
to the to any pressure, it seems. Am I missing something? I mean, they still haven't condemned Moss. Shafiq is not really changing her tune. This is a, particularly the case at elite universities that are sitting on these endowments. They just don't feel the heat that a normal competitive environment would lead to. So what are your thoughts in terms of how to put pressure on this? Yeah, so I wish I had an answer. I mean, I, I'll tell you this. The, the, when that video went viral, I was like, that's it, we're done. I can go back to being anonymous. <laughs> I thought getting them to condemn Hamas was the easy fight. Um, in the last six weeks, I've been learning that Columbia University and many of these universities care about only two things, PR and money. And I've been trying to get to put the pressure on and people have been amazing trying to put the pressure on. What we really need now is a big non-Jewish donor to pull out publicly and say, this is not a Jewish problem. This is society's problem. If we can get to one of those big donors with names on uh, on buildings like the Bill Ross, right? And we and we saw that happen, yeah. right? If we can get a non-Jewish donor to pull out of Columbia University, one of the large ones, I believe we will see a change. And if we can get the media that typically is not too embracing of the Jewish people to come and say Colombia has a problem, then we'll have an effect, right? My goal right now, I don't know, I don't know how many of you have been to Colombia, the main campus in the past few weeks, the university has lost control of the campus. It's it's like a it's like a company where the CEOs do not control anything. That is not Israeli students' problem, and that is not Jewish students' problem. No student right now is safe. When we get people to understand that, then they can no longer brush it away. Oh, it's the Jews are overreacting again. I think, and if that doesn't work, then. I don't know, but we need to try the most. We have a Columbia student in the back who wants to ask. That gentleman has been waiting for so long, so, okay. so let's make sure that we also get his question. Okay. okay. Let's just stay because. It's related to what you were saying. I'm um, from law school. And it feels like anytime the administration does do something, things just get way worse. So how do, how do we, you know, reconcile that? It gets way worse in what way? Protesters are more involved. Oh, okay. Things are more violent. Oh, wow. Uh, Protest, like we had a protest in the law school, like in the lobby, uh, over SJP and JDP getting suspended, and, and like protests are more violent now. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, that's a great answer. Every time the university does something, it gets worse. Well, because they don't do the right thing. On October 11th, the day before the first SJP JVP protest, we sounded the alarm. We said this is going to be a problem, and that morning of the protest, 
very, the, the, the president, the provost, and all the deans of the schools had a meeting. And the dean of the business school, who's been amazing, and has you know, been my way of reaching the leadership, told the university, this is going to be a problem. They didn't listen. They just closed the gates, brought in the NYPD. That day, at that protest, I was talking to any journalist that would listen and say, we are going to see violence now, and this is going to be on the president's hands. Lo and behold, we started seeing violence on campus. Then, when the, universe, when the president finally said, I'm going to write a, a letter, right, 11 days after October 7th, I know for a fact that there are several deans said, this is not strong enough. You should do this and this and this. And they didn't listen. So it's not that they are getting it wrong. They're trying to get it right and they're getting it wrong. They have all the information. Right now, they don't have the desire to get it right. That's the problem. Just two last questions. Can I, can I add on to that really quickly? Sorry. Um, I want to say yes and. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's really important that um, students and alumni are reaching out to administrators and especially big donors. Absolutely. I think something else that we can do um, to put pressure on the universities is actually at a national level and reaching out to your, your representatives in Congress. Right now, Congress is actually listening. They're seeing that there's a big problem on the campuses. Um, and by you reaching out to your, your congressperson um, and telling them what your concerns are um, as a father, as um, you know, an alumni of this campus, and seeing the state of um, you know, the future of, of, of American Jews and seeing what's happening in America today, and voicing those concerns um, is going to go a long way right now. Right now, we're being outpaced in Congress four to one. Um, for every one phone call from a Jewish representative sending their, saying their concerns about what's happening in Israel, they're getting four um, saying, calling for an immediate ceasefire. So right now, it's more important than ever to continue to reach out to your Congress people, and I think that's going to go a long way. Yeah, we, we can. Thank you. Um, we have just two last questions. Yeah. Actually, before we get to that, I want to hop in. I wasn't sure if I would, but I'll be fully honest. I have the exact opposite take as the mainstream Jewish community when it comes to college campuses. I do not think that Jewish people should be pulling their donations, and I do not think that we should be telling our students to stop going to certain schools. I think it's the exact opposite because of a couple of reasons. And I've been consistent with this from 2019 when I sued NYU and after I spoke at every single event, the first question I always got was someone saying, thank God I didn't send my kids there, thank God I didn't go there, I'll pull my donations immediately. Exact opposite. We have unfortunately internalized a lot of the anti-Semitic tropes about ourselves, that Jews have power and Jews have money, which we do. But guess what? NYU has NYU Tisch, NYU Stern, NYU Weinstein, NYU Silver, NYU Steinhardt. Every single one of them are Jews. And guess what? Every single one of them is extremely involved in the university, and that has not made a difference. Them threatening to pull donations, actually pulling donations. You know what? We have a campus in Tel Aviv. We also have a campus in Abu Dhabi. And guess what? There is always Qatar. I don't think we should be pulling donations, and I don't think that Jewish students should stop going. The exact opposite. We should give endowments with specific purposes. For example, NYU Center for Research on Anti-Semitism. That's coming from an endowment from a Jewish donor that said, hey, you guys need to do this. And the reason why Jewish students should continue to go to the Berkeley's, Columbia's, and Cooper unions of the world is because if we are in the room with a seat at the table and they're saying these things about us, what happens when we step out of the room? And if we just let others decide where a Jew can and cannot feel comfortable, then we're letting anti-Semitism win. 
So if I could do everything over, I would go back to NYU. And guess what? I did apply to NYU Law, early decision, and well, there's no ED in law schools, but I applied to NYU and they didn't want me back. And I applied to the other schools and they were too afraid to take me. And I completely understand. And I'm at Yeshiva University so I can grow my skills, so I can go back and help other students do their schools. So we shouldn't be pulling our donations. We should be telling the schools to actually use them for something. Adele, let me just ask you, this is Play Devil's Advocate. Play. If we're giving so much money and we have such a presence and yet there's so much anti-Semitism at Columbia where I went and at NYU, then how is being there mattering? Because every single thought leader is going to come out of there. If you look at Congress, how many of them went to Ivy League institutions? At least some of them had a Jewish colleague, a Jewish peer sitting in the chair next to them to share our story. There's only 16 million of us. That's a very small number. So you have to be there in that chair next to your peer who might be a future change maker. You're and you saying, have to be there in the face. For others graduating but not having an impact on the school itself. Because we're not having for all the money we're giving and all the presence we have, we're not really making such a difference in terms of policy when it comes to anti Semitism. Well, yes and no. I think that right now this is the very first time that there's a microscope in these schools and that's the first time that you see this SJP I mean, suspension, the first time you see the center. And what, if I could just finish this one about, point. Well, you know, I just to say, because I graduated Columbia yeah. in 1992. Edward Said was the head of the literature department at the time. This nonsense was going on then. I wonder how many billions of dollars have been given to Columbia University from Jewish people since I graduated in 92. And my question, I'm playing devil's advocate. Because yeah. there's, a way, there's a way to reconcile the two. I would say this. I I, sorry, I, mean, I, I can speak to you can <laughs> sorry but 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 you we can go and be students take but we don't have to give those are two different things I agree and we can go and be professors and make sure that we stay there which is exactly what you're doing and I commend for now and again which is yeah. very important no it, it is very important and it, the one thing I will say is that right now, but I had a conversation this morning with UJA because we all think that it's a lot more fatalistic than it is, and maybe it is at Columbia. But today with UJA, I had a trip about a conversation about university presidents, and they told me that the ones that they have spoken to are exhausted. Why? Because they privileged activism in their admissions committees for the last, what, 10, 15 years, and now it's blowing up in their face, and Columbia is looking like a company where there's no CEOs and people are running them up and the administrations are tired. And you're right, they only care about money and PR. And guess what? The money, it doesn't matter how much we try, we're not gonna get there, but the PR, they're doing it themselves. When your own students are supporting Osama bin Laden because that was taught to them by their professors, you're gonna turn around and realize you have an issue. And this is gonna be slow and you are 100% right because that happened to me at NYU. Every single time the administration does something, even if it's the right move, the students are gonna get emboldened. I, the first time that NYU condemned BDS while I was on campus, I literally had members of student government come and say, Daddy Beckman came to bail you out. Beckman is the spokesperson of NYU's administration. And honestly, I felt great that NYU was condemning BDS, but at the same time, student government started boycotting me because Daddy Beckman was on my side. It's an issue, and what right now, I hate to say it, there's a four-year turnaround. If you're on campus right now, you have to make noise. If you're a teacher right now, you have to stand your ground. But there's going to be a four-year turnaround because there's always a four-year turnaround and academic institutions are taking note. And you're right, you don't have to give and that's definitely not something that you're going to do. But if you already have the money there, you have the power and the power isn't used by taking it out, it's by steering it, I personally believe. But yes, anyway, we can move on to the gentleman's question. Hi, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, you're right, uh, when I was in college, uh, I graduated in 2008, uh, 
Uh, even at state schools, uh, local, private schools, they all have the same issue. Um, I think it's in part because they're all following each other. And maybe even there's some faculty who you know, don't get tenure at Columbia or Rutgers or whatever, and they go to the smaller schools. Uh, and there's also international students, I think you briefly touched on that, where they bring a very different perspective. Not just from Qatar or Muslims, but maybe they're from Latin America or Africa, and they identify with people who are brown like them, for, for lack of a better term. So they don't, they're never going to see it the way we do. But what I do notice is that, you know, you mentioned like fitting in, it's a bigger, it seems to be, at least from what I've seen, a bigger problem in certain fields than others. Because, like, for example, you're a business and psychology professor, right? So you're more looking at evidence based. Whereas things like social work or things that, you know, are history or whatever, that there's more of that, you know, looking at it. Like when I took gen eds and social sciences, everything that they looked at was through the lens of race, class, gender, and power dynamics. So if that is your field, obviously it's not my field, but if it were your field, you realize that if you're going to go against the grain, you know, especially now, you know, they're emboldened because of what happened with George Floyd and the BLM movement and the DEI movement, the progressives think they really have the upper hand and that supporting the Palestinians just in logical extension of that. If you're going to go into those fields, you're going to have a very hard time if you don't fit in. And if you disagree with those things, probably you will leave those fields. So, I mean, does that make sense? Is that you see that? Yeah, too? so I actually just spoke to a student that's going to Columbia um, School of Social Work. And that's the one that, I don't know if you saw the videos on social media, that they sat in the lobby and would chant as people were walking by. So she called me shortly after this happened. I spoke to her and I spoke to her father who was very concerned. And um, 100%, we said that she tried to go um, to her supervisor to say that she was feeling anti-Semitism on campus. Her supervisor was like, oh, I think we have to bring you into a higher level. They brought her in and basically they were saying like, because she was talking about how she was emotionally distraught and then they're like, oh, are you saying that you aren't able to help your patients? And if you're emotionally distraught, maybe you should take a leave of absence. And she's like, I'm coming to you for a problem in my school. And instead, you wanted to suspend me, which was really an issue. But I spoke to someone at NYU School of Social Work. They were hosting an event called um, Decolonizing Therapy. And the, the bio of the speaker said something along the lines of, um, we must recognize that therapy is inherently political and in dealing with our and in speaking with our clients We must have them realize that they themselves are a product of colonization And I was like no therapy is not inherently political <laughs> It's therapy right and the student spoke to the school and after we drafted a letter together She sent it in they ended up canceling the event because just like I said administrators are tired It's getting to the point that even some people there are tired now. It's gonna be hard Exactly and that is where the field is but it's unfortunate. What are we going to do? We're not going to have any Jewish social workers? Can I add on as a, as a social worker? Yes. I think a lot of it has to do with putting everything into American context, putting everything into black and white. And I think that is what has caused all of this to come. So people have to realize that not everything is about the um, blacks in America, that social work has to be about everybody. So if Jewish social workers like myself cannot be allowed in respected in my own community because I've literally been bullied by other social workers for saying that I'm Jewish, for saying that I feel indigenous to Israel, and for standing up for Israel. So I think a lot of it has to be put into, let's put everything into black and white. But let's I still want to be a social worker. 
I want to be a social worker so I can make a difference because I don't think being silent is going to help our case. And I think even though I know I'm a minority, I mean, Jews around the world are. It's going to impact my career. It's already been impacting. And unfortunately, I do notice that people want to throw everything into Western context and wants to manipulate things without knowing actual facts and that there's everybody at the end of the day is a result of whatever you want to call it, indigenality, colonization, because culture. every, yeah, everyone. Let me, yeah, let me just say, let me just say one thing, because I think we should keep this conversation going, but I do want to take one thing about what you said. I don't like when people call me, you know, when people say the Jews. When we say that's fine, but. <laughs> but you, you, you use the word the progressives, as if like it's someone out there. I'm progressive. I, you know, I have. I consider myself progressive. I'm like, why would you not want to progress? That seems like a good thing. But I see those people as non-progressive. They're regressive, right? I don't see them as social justice because what they're doing is not social. When you're shouting at people, that's not social and there's no justice there. Right? I don't let anyone take claim for the labels that I, that I care about, that are part of who I am. I'm not going to let anyone exclude me from my own identity as Jewish, but also as my own identity as a liberal, liberal, progressive, New York Jew, whatever, right? That's one thing that is important. The other thing is, you're right, we have a problem. I was sitting today with someone um, higher up in the university, and he said, like, this is happening for 20 years, right? You, you, you don't get... You don't hire radical people right away. You don't hire, like no one looks at the, okay, let's get the most extremists. No, you get somewhat radical people, and then they get tenure, and they hire somewhat a bit more radical people, and then, you know, and that's how you get women's studies, which is an amazing idea, right? Something that, that, that the feminist movement had to fight for, being taken over by people that will refuse to take the victim's word when the victim happens to be also Israeli, right? That is how we get, but that's partly on us. Because, so how many parents do we have here? What's your son studying? That's my father. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I, know. I, want, I want him to answer. Economics. Great, do you have other kids? Sure. What are they studying? No, they're out of school. Well, what did they study? Human biology and Right. Also, ethics based disciplines. We're no longer, you know, my 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 wife went to Columbia, as I got her master's. Her grandfather was a church professor of Jewish studies at Columbia, a history professor. We're not sending Jewish kids to, you know, study history and their return. Right. We we've given up on them. They've given up on us. So. You know, and I'm not saying like all of you now change your career trajectory. I went to study psychology, which for my family was like, whoa, you're gonna be destitute. But <laughs> so I, I showed them and I went to a business school later, but 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 we're not we're not there. So part of what we should also be doing is pushing towards that. Right? One of the things my wife is an author and a translator. You know, and and 
Jewish authors in New York City used to be like, it was the pinnacle. Like, you, you know, everybody wanted to be an author, and if you weren't Jewish, then you're like, oh, I can't be an author, right? But we've kind of given up on a lot of, you know, our own, and we've secluded it to ourselves. So, you know, so we have the Jewish prize for, for books. But we need to, to, to make clear, like, that this is not about being Jewish. This is about being American. This is a question I, raise your hand if you know Raise your hand if, if you know when Jewish Heritage Month is. <laughs> All right. Raise your hand if you know when Black History Month is. There you go. All right. Jewish Heritage Month is in May. Did you ever have that in school? When you went to college, did you have like, okay, this month we're focusing. Does the New York Times have a special Jewish Heritage Month you know, uh, list of op-eds? No. Why not? Jewish Americans are have contributed a lot to the history of this country. Unfortunately, both from the Union and from the Confederacy, but they are a big part of this country. We are, you know, and I'm an immigrant here, but it's part of the heritage. So my goal, so if you're asking about the long-term I mean, goal. I, I, I would just, I would say also on this, this is very, very important, Shai. We've spent a long time in this country trying to fit in and not to make too much noise and to keep the yarmulke off and hide the Magin David and just get by. And that's why nobody here, including me, a rabbi, doesn't know when the heck Jewish Heritage Month is. Because we don't shout, we don't scream. And as long as nobody bothers us, we... And we shouldn't shout and scream. But I, I well, say that we need to start acting as the marginalized minority that we are. We have been, for too long, we've been focused on arguing between ourselves. If you're Chabad, if you're modern Orthodox, conservative, reform, if you're this um, and we should keep having these debates I get a question. but then we have to also organize together and say now we're 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 going to work as a jewish you know group to ask we're not asking for special treatment we're just asking to be acknowledged as the minority that we are and we're a big minority in new york city forget the whole other country public schools in new york city should have a jewish heritage month you know, and kids should learn about it, even if we're not Jewish. Just like I want my kid to learn about Martin Luther, King, Martin Luther King, I want all the other kids to also learn about Emma Goldman. That's the reason why you're eight years old and you're not working and you're in school, right? Rabbi um, Just one second. Henry's just been waiting for like an hour. Go for it. Remember when we promised two more questions? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might be the second question. Uh, so. Um, uh, I'm on the older side of the millennial generation. Uh, and I remember when I was in college, actually at Columbia as well, but in my 20s, you know, there was much made about the millennials. They said we were, you know, lazy. We didn't have a good work ethic. We thought we were going to, like, walk into the job and, you know, take over the company. Some of it was true. Some of it, some <laughs> of it wasn't. And, you know, I was at dinner a couple nights ago with my cousin who's 21, 22, and I turned to her. I said, you're, you're Gen Z, right? Gen Z, right? I said, so like, what's up with your generation? Like, what, really, like, what's going on? You know, and she said, oh, well, I'm obviously pro-Israel and all my friends are pro-Israel. She's Jewish, right? So, so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, um, I don't know, interested or curious, like, why hasn't as much, and maybe this is like generational warfare because the baby boomers beat us up so good, the millennials, but why hasn't, um, so much been made of Gen Z 
and their failings or their successes or just like a critical analysis of this generation? Let's hear from one of them. I, want to recommend, yeah, I, want, I don't know, but I recommend the Jews. Mike, Michael North is a professor at uh, NYU, and he studies exactly this question of generations and how we perceive, and, and he's an upper west side Jew, so maybe he will help us. Um, there are a couple of things. Primarily, the issue with um, my generation, I think, I, I would honestly, I would disagree with your characterization that there is not a lot of shade being thrown at my generation, as we would say. There's a tremendous amount of shade. Um, and it's rightly deserved, right? When you see people on TikTok celebrating Osama bin Laden, America's waking up to the failings that are going on for my generation. But we're not blaming it on my generation because they're being taught certain things from your generation, from older generations. So the real issue, it's not, the, the point of identifying the issue is not to say, like, why isn't there more uh, why isn't there a greater focus on, on this issue or that issue? It's about correctly identifying the problem. So I honestly don't care if there's not more press about why my classmates seem to have issues with base, like fundamental critical thinking. The, the bigger issue is that once we acknowledge that these are real issues, is okay, great, it's an issue. Now let's solve it. And we need to solve it structurally, and we need to solve it with policy making, calling out representatives, um, and, and pulling out, I, I agree, honestly, we shouldn't be pulling out funding, but we should be uh, creating uh, grants that are directed towards Middle Eastern studies. For, for example, there's a Middle Eastern event at Hunter College, and they had the flags of every single country in the NASA, as they would say, actually, minus the stuff, uh, uh, Middle East, North Africa, and Southern Asia. Israel was not in that list. I'm pretty sure it's at exactly the focal point of all of those places, <laughs> ge geographically. So when you're talking about what we should be doing to combat the issue, once we've identified it, it's, it's, it's like, like we've been discussing, it's about directing our resources in the correct way and our energies in the, in the right way. And in, and in that vein, something that was really great that Yeshiva University did today was they had, at the end of, we, we have a Gemara Shiva, we have a Gemara lesson taught by one of the rabbis there, and they took the last couple of minutes for every student to call their representative because they're not getting enough, enough uh, thanks for doing the right thing. And again, I would also agree, we shouldn't be looking at things through the progressive or conservative lens. And I honestly, I never imagined I would find myself defending the progressive lens. I'm, I'm quite a staunch conservative. But the point is that what we're defending right now is justice and goodness. And that's a fundamental American value that crosses political boundaries. The way you might view it might be different. But fundamentally, what we're dealing with right now is a very clear good and bad. So I'm not concerned that there's some progressives who are, right, I, I'm not mad about Richie Torres. I'm very happy with Richie Torres, right? Do I disagree with him on housing policy? Yeah. Do I care about that particularly right now? No, so should I be thanking Richie Torres and sending him a letter that says thank you? 100%, and that's what everybody should be doing. And when you're talking about my generation, a politically energized generation, so let's direct my generation to do the right thing, to reach out to the representatives, to speak out in school, to learn how to speak passionately and articulately. And that's a, those are skills that are, developed through practice, and there are skills that are developed by reaching out to other people who are currently in these positions. I'm, I'm very happy that I met all of you, and I, I think that from this event, we're gonna build better things, and I think that's very important. How old are you? I'm 20. Next up, next up, anyone says anything about Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way that I could even 
Here's the thing, we, it's 10 o'clock, and I want to be respectful of our panel's time. Uh, Phil has a last question. He's going to make it really, really quick. Before Phil asks this question, because I know people are going to start getting, it's a weeknight and people want to get out of here, I really want to just take this opportunity to thank all of you. This has been an amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you. Um, it's actually been a, um, a, um, a closet um, advertisement at Yeshiva University, by the way, just so you should know. I went to YU, and this whole, the goal of the whole night was to get everybody to drop out of NYU, Columbia, and all these ridiculous schools and go to no, a Jewish school. Going. Yeah, just keep pouring your money in there. Keep it's not going, it's working. I'm just kidding. I don't mean to get cynical. Um, I really want to thank you guys for coming. You guys were amazing. Uh, let's take one last question. I do also want to mention that this is just the beginning. We are going to continue to discuss and empower. I love what you did by calling up random people and embarrassing them publicly. That was really beautiful. You've obviously been a professor for many years. Um, no, that was really good because I, I'm, I'm like a heady guy and I also don't always speak from the heart and from the brain and that's what we really need. So I wanna thank you for doing that and invite um, many of you to continue to do that with us here uh, at MJE. And um, I just blanked, I had some program I was supposed to plug. Moshe is standing in the back. If you want to thank the mayor, Moshe is the Jewish liaison to Mayor Adams, who's been wonderful. Um, he's been very outspoken in support of Israel. You can speak to Moshe afterwards about how you can communicate your gratitude to the mayor. And uh, Ezra, if we can please send out to everyone that's here, seven or eight, have the numbers, of Richie Tor, the other elected officials. We have to constantly thank them and, um, and let's post. As Talia was saying, if you want to get involved also on the legal end, please speak with Adela. I think it's so important, this Title VI. Jews are great lawyers. We need a lawyer up, sue lots of people, because that makes a big difference. It does, money talks. And um, I, whatever, I have my own personal view about the money issue and uh, you know, to give us a lot of inspiration and hope for the future. Last question, last question over here. No, no, no. I just need to interject one quick thing. It's not a question. Just that the part where you mentioned that you've been embarrassed, you know, you were successfully able to embarrass so many of them and debunk your theories, you know, their victories. You're not alone in that because at the DC rally, I was successful in being able to do the exact same at the, like, you know, at the protests of those, you know, counter ultra orthodox, uh, I guess you could say, left right wingers. Oh, that's not true. Stop supporting, or actually, for that matter, stop, like, you know, stop raping babies and stop sleeping for nine minutes. That was so great. Yeah, okay, Phil. <laughs> um, we were, last, last topic we were talking about was making noise. I don't need the microphone, thank you, though. Um, okay. Do you want to make noise? Okay, I do want to make noise. Well, now, you know, we kind of took our, keep us off, hit the whatever. Um, and you're saying we have to scream, we have to make a statement. Kind of got to throw our fist in the air and make a tantrum. But how do we? How, what do you think? Aside from the all the excellent point points you guys all made, what do you think is the number one difference that we should do in doing that that lets us keep our integrity at the same time while we throw that tantrum? So yeah. So so here's what I learned about when you give a 10 minute video shouting. Uh, people assume you're angry. When you're angry, people want to you know shoot you down. But I'm not angry. And, and there's a difference between 
making noise because you're angry, which then you're taking it out on someone else, and making noise because you're scared or feeling pain, and you're just asking to be to receive others' respect. That's a difference. Now, what what do I mean by um, acting as the as the, my, the marginalized minority that we are? It really is about you know each one of you finding your own skills, your own abilities, and create and, and using them to create, you know, some Jewish identity wherever you are, right? If you have a, a book club, and I'm saying not just with other Jewish people, but, you know, you have a book club with your friends, you know, you should have one month where you decide we're going to choose a Jewish author, and you, I'm not going to choose it, let your friends choose it, right? If you have something at work and you know that for Black History Month you do something extremely important, then you know make sure that HR knows that May is Jewish Heritage Month. And if they don't want to organize it, step up. And you should organize it. Right? If you're a teacher, you know, make sure that you that you teach your students, not indoctrinate your students, but but expose them to to other things, it's specifically from an American lens, right? So it doesn't have to be the Talmud. It doesn't have to be about the 14, uh, you know, when all, all Americans, you think, you think of uh, 1492, you think about Christopher Columbus. I think about the Inquisition, right? You know, you, we can talk about all the other things. It's all about making sure that people see us as, as a group that has contributed to, to uh, society. Whenever I go traveling in the United States, small towns, I, I always visit a synagogue. It's the only time in my life that I visit a synagogue. Although, like in the last six weeks, I've been to a lot of synagogues and I've met a lot of great rabbis. And <laughs> that's exactly that was my dad's response. Um, but I go because I want to know what's the history, right? That's how I know, you know, about the dark history of Jews in the Confederacy but also about the amazing history of Jews in, in the Union, right? That's how I, you know, and you learn about, you know, May Day, right? These, these student organizations that are probably on May 1st are going to be like, ah, you know, communism, and you're like, okay, those are Jews, <laughs> right? Those, like, those were Jews, those are New York City, you know, the garment, the, those were Jews. Not all of them, but many of them, right? So like, educating not just about Israel, not just about geopolitics, but hey, like, educate as like the minority that we are. I think that's important. But, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I really want to thank everyone for coming. I would be remiss. I would be remiss if I didn't share and just leave you that this is an opportunity for us to re-identify and to strengthen our own personal Judaism. We can't be continue to be a light amongst the nations and to really represent who we are if we don't really know deeply who we truly are, which is what MG is all about, which is why I'll be seeing you this Shabbat. I'm looking forward, <laughs> all of you. Seriously, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Todd, for coming to the Thank you, Gidon. Thank you all for coming. They'll stick around for a few minutes if you have any other questions. Lila Tov, everyone.